please rise for the reading of God's Word. If you need a Bible, raise your hands. We're going through Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Going to be starting in verse 32 of chapter 10. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering partly while you were made a spectacle by, by, both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while. He who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back to perdition or damnation is, is the word. But of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray this morning for every man and woman in this room, Lord, just to draw near by your grace with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Lord, as we've learned, with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, meaning with grace having the privilege of having our guilt and our guilty consciences set aside, Lord. That that would happen with every man and woman this morning in Christ. Boldly we come to you as your word says we have the privilege of doing. Please open up our hearts and minds to you this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Okay, you can be seated. So the book of Hebrews, so rich, this book. It's uh, actually a letter I'd like to begin this morning, very briefly, going back to chapter 1 of Hebrews. You know, from time to time in this study, I think uh, it's just so important for us to read the first few uh, verses again. So we can get tuned in to the letter because the, these verses, the first couple of verses, just actually the first half a dozen verses really establish uh, where the rest of the letter is going to go. And it's, uh, they express so well uh, what this book and letter is about. 
Uh, verse 1 also happens to be, I believe, just it's just such a powerful verse. I mean, it's, it's just one of the best introductions of any book uh, in the Bible. It says, God, who at various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. A better translation, actually, of verse 2 is, has in these last days spoken to us in Son, or in His Son. This book was, this letter was written to uh, Jewish Christians in the early uh, first century who were in a season of discouragement. They had been through a lot of persecution. On top of that, there was a famine in the land, there was just a lot of stuff that was pulling them away from their faith. There's a lot of stuff today pulling us away, or at least trying to pull us away today from our faith. A lot of voices out there. So in here, I guess more, not the early, but middle first century, these Jewish Christians, they were in a season of discouragement. What does the writer do in verse 1? He puts Jesus Christ front and center in the letter. God, who in these last days spoke through prophets, um, rather, God in the, um, at various times in the past spoke through the po- uh, prophets, but in these last days, uh, verse 2, has spoken to us in His Son. He puts Jesus Christ front and center. And that is really from beginning to the end of this letter. That's what he does. That's what actually the Holy Spirit, who is really the author of this letter, did. And that's what he's doing for us. If you're in a season of discouragement, confusion, doubt, difficulty, trust, nothing will set your alignment straight. Nothing will get you retuned, nothing will lift your countenance, nothing will uh, encourage you more than putting Jesus Christ in the front and center of your life, fixing your eyes on Him. The Bible says He is the author, author, He, Jesus Christ, is the author and the finisher of your faith. He's the beginning and the end. He put it together. And we already read in, in, in Hebrews, he's the captain of your salvation, meaning he, he authored your faith and he's going to take it right on into uh, eternity to fix your eyes on him, remembering what Jesus has done for you. Remember uh, that he is coming again. This book does all of that. It puts him front and center and um, he will... It, always have the effect of uplifting you um, even as your faith is, is being drawn away by the so many voices um, out there, the many things uh, trying to draw you away. Verse 3 says, uh, speaking of Jesus, uh, verse 3 uh, of chapter 1 says that He is the brightness of God's glory, the express 
or rather the exact representation of his person. Meaning God didn't, doesn't leave it uh, to our best guess to try to figure out who he is. He sent his son, who the Bible says didn't consider equality with the Father something to be held onto, but made himself nothing and ter- uh, took on the form of a man, it says in Philippians chapter 2. It says in verse 3 here, he took, he, he, he's the express image of God's person. It goes on in verse 3, he upholds all things by the word of his power, Jesus Christ, to those who know him, he is in control. It goes on in verse 3. When he by himself, didn't get anyone else's help, purged our sins, meaning we have a blight on our life, a stain on our life, a corruption in our gene pool, in our DNA, that he purged, he did away with, he wiped clean. And then it goes on and says, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word sat down at the right hand repeated throughout this letter. Why did he sit down? Because all the work is done. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of activity by the priests in the temple, and they were never sitting down. Neither was there a place for them to sit down. Why? Because what they were doing was a mere foreshadowing of Jesus to come. But Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty, it says at the end of chapter 1, verse 3. There's simply no substitute for putting Jesus Christ front and center in your life, brothers and sisters, listen, that is what you were created for. To have him front and center, to be in a relationship, to live for him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and rose again. So, now, turn back with me to chapter 10 of this rich, rich letter. There's so much in here. Don't want to miss a bit of it. Verse 32 says this, speaking to these Jewish Christians, it says, recall the former days in which After you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. That word illuminated there. It's the Greek word. Remember originally this letter written in Greek. It's the word photizo from which we get photograph. It means to bring light to. It can also be translated just to to open one's eyes person cannot enter into a relationship with God unless their eyes have been opened, or as this word says, illuminated. And Jesus Christ compared salvation to the blind seeing. 
So verse 32 again, but recall the former days in which after you had your eyes opened, it can be translated, illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches, which means insult, insults, and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. Verse 33 then says there were two reasons why these Jewish Christians were suffering when they first came to Christ. Uh, one, it says in verse 33, it says partly because you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, meaning people were coming against them for putting their faith in Christ. Their families were subject to just the anger of the multitude, particularly the Jewish community, but also at this time, Rome, the, uh, enter, uh, the Emperor Claudius had kicked out all the Jews out of Rome, including Jewish Christians. There's no difference, by the way, at the time uh, between Jews, uh, Jewish Christians that were considered Jews, and so they were kicked out uh, with everyone else. It says, again, partly because um, uh, you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations. But then in verse uh, 33, it also says, and partly because you became companions of those who were so treated, meaning other people who were um, being the subject of reproaches and insults, and uh, they came alongside um, of those people. In other words, uh, they didn't mind their own business. You know, sometimes minding your own business uh, is a good thing to do. Other times, it's a shameful thing uh, to do. And there's a temptation when a person, a Christian, is taking a stand for truth. Uh, they are simply, uh, when someone is simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ and for righteousness, uh, they're being ridiculed or they're being insulted or, or they're made a spectacle uh, of, well, there's a temptation to say, well, I, I need to mind my own business. I need to keep my mouth shut. I get my own problems. My, I, I, you know, I get problems enough of my own. I get my own family, my own reputation. No, this verse says, no, you, you, a, a, a spirit-filled Christian comes alongside of those who are being treated uh, in this way. And, and that's what these Jewish Christians were doing, and they were suffering because of it. In verse, back in verse 32, it says, because of it all, they were enduring a great struggle. A great struggle. So why? <laughs> why were they doing that? Why bother? Why take on all this extra grief? Why speak up when a professor begins to mock the Bible? Why believe in something when it is so fashionable uh, to believe in nothing? Nothing. 
Why say you believe in Jesus when it is so unfashionable? Why share your faith with someone when in Boston, that's just not something you do here. You keep quiet about these things. Why spend the night alone rather than going out with everyone else to get drunk or get high or get sex? Why do that? Why stick with your convictions on abortion and the definition of marriage when people look at you as if you're a freak of nature? Why not laugh at a crude joke? Why risk your career by refusing to look the other way when your workplace is shading the law? Why go down to Haiti to love on people? To be with them, to hug them, to come alongside of them in, in their desperate struggle for life. That's what's going on down there. When you look at the travel warning and it says, don't go to Haiti unless it's absolutely necessary. Why go down and teach kids in the projects down the street uh, every afternoon with, uh, with our church when there's, when there's violent crime there? Everyone knows that, those projects. Why go into youth prison ministry each week when the situation seems so hopeless? You know, we go there each week. One of the workers who has been there for 20 years has told us that... Uh, He's been there for 20 years, and over and over and over again, he was, uh, the kids would leave there and just get killed. It's still happening today. And after about 200 funerals, it was just so dis depressing and discouraging to him. He just stopped. Wow. But why bother inserting ourselves into such a hopeless situation? Why why make a public spectacle of yourself, verse 32? Why come along, verse 32 and verse 33, why come along others who are being made a spectacle of? When I was nine years old, my family left Metro, the metropolitan Boston area, and we moved to South America, Venezuela, and eventually... Uh, when I was 16 or 17 years old, my father, who took us around to different churches my whole life, he went to a Christian church. We had never been to one before. And at that church, we met, we would meet missionaries from time to time coming uh, on their way back or going to the States from the Amazon jungle. They lived with tribes in the middle of the jungle. And one of these missionaries invited uh, my brother and I down to, to visit him. Now, at the time, I had no interest in, in uh, being a Christian, living for Jesus. But being a 17-year-old kid, I had some interest in, like, going down in the middle of the Amazon. Now, wow, that was like... I, I, that was like something big. And so um, off I went with my brother and my best friend Pete Reyes, and we took a plane down to a, this sort of uh, city on a river down there, and from there we took a little six-seater airplane, and we uh, flew out a couple hours over the Amazon, just this vast, just like all the pictures, just unbelievable. And so we coming down and to, to land near this tribe, and 
right in front of us. What is there? There's a grass runway, and it's the only runway I've ever seen which took a turn in the middle. It, was like, it went like this, right in the middle. I'm like, oh, that does not look like a runway where you turn, the plane turns right in the middle. But anyway, uh, it landed, and, and we were, uh, it landed safety, uh, safely and got off the plane. There was a line of Indians around the plane. It was like right out of a National Geographic. They didn't have clo- clothes except for loincloths. They had these big sticks through their uh, ears and their nose. They uh, would paint themselves up, and they had these big, long blowguns. They carried around and shot things with. The average lifespan, 40 years or less, and a life was not a happy life. Constant fear. Fear of the demonic realm. There was a demon in the sunset. There were demons behind every tree sort of deal. And they got sick. They would thrash each other with whips to get the demons out. Disease, malaria. We got off the plane and went to the river, and on the pathway to the river, all of a sudden, we, right over our shoulders, or actually to, uh, up to the right, there was a big, massive tarantula. In the tree. I mean, this thing was huge. I mean, they do movies about things like this. And I have one right in front of me right now. Someone took a machete and cut it in half. We were going along a path, uh, you know, on a walk with a missionary. And, and uh, my brother and, and Paul, who, who was our missionary friend, went on ahead, and, all, and Pete, my friend Pete, was right in front of me, and all of a sudden Pete goes, whoa, 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 whoa. There's a big old snake poised to bite, strike. The mariposa, it was called. Very poisonous snake. My, bl- my brother took a shotgun and blew its head off. I don't know if you were prepared to hear these type of things this morning, but at night we, uh, during the day rather, we would uh, inner tube down the, this river. At the same night, we would go out in a little motorized canoe and shoot alligators. <laughs> don't ask me. And we ate one of them the next day. I mean, this was a blast for a 17-year-old kid. I mean, this was like living in fantasy land down there. Now, I'm sure that these missionaries loved our company, but the truth of the matter was, when we left, they were all by themselves. Actually, their kids were off at some school somewhere else, and just to survive was such a huge undertaking for them. They had to bake their own bread, they, just getting running water, generator, electricity, sort, that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you're down there, there really is this overwhelming feeling, and, and I, I've been back there. Actually, I went with my son, Sam, uh, a few years ago. You just get this feeling of being totally alone, totally isolated. These people are down there on their own, and you get this feeling, does anyone know they're even here? They're just toiling away 
these missionaries. A few years after our visit there, the wife, the mom, Honey was her name, Honey Griffiths. She's a sweet, sweet young lady. She woke up one morning dead. She went to bed feeling fine, woke up dead. Don't know why. May have been a snake bite. There are snakes down there that you don't feel them bite, but you're dead within 24 hours, and there are these little things. I didn't become a Christian. I didn't give my heart to the Lord for five or six years. But these people made a big impression on me. Why on earth would someone go to the middle of nowhere and live in total isolation just for a couple hundred Indians? At the time I was in school in Caracas with a bunch of rich American kids. And the Lord was already working on my heart. I would look around at kids and their families and I was struck by how shallow it all was. Money, power, status, expensive things and just a big contest to show it all off. But these people, these missionaries, Paul and Honey, living in the middle of nowhere, they had something that was so precious. It was just so rich. They had something that obviously money could not buy. They had something so unique, so different, so unshakable. What was it? Read with me verse 37, chapter 10 of Hebrews. For yet a little while, and he, Jesus, who is coming, will come and will not tarry. But now the just shall live by faith. It was faith. It was faith that these people had. The answer to all the whys. The why, 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 why. It was faith. Why would people do it, do that, do these things? Why would they live for such conviction? Whether there or here or in Boston or, or, or anywhere. It was faith. The Bible says it's more precious than gold. And though gold perishes, it does not. The just shall live by faith, verse 38 says. You know, that verse right there is a quote from the Old Testament, the book of Habakkuk, written by the prophet Habakkuk. It's a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 3. The prophet Habakkuk was living at a time in Israel where society was just tearing apart. There was lawlessness. People were rejecting the living God and embracing every god, other god there was. And of course the other gods suited their sort of 
lower nature, their baser parts, and uh, the god of sensuality, the god of materiality, the intellectualism. And, and in the book of Habakkuk, you read the prophet crying out, God, how can you let this happen? And there's a sense of how could anything's po- anything uh, possibly get worse? Well, be careful what you pray for. God told him, God told Habakkuk, if, if I told you, you would probably not believe me, but he went ahead and told him anyway. He told him that the enemies of Israel, the Babylonians, were coming to just wipe everything out. And so the book of Habakkuk is about the prophet Habakkuk processing all of this that he's hearing from God, working through the information that he's receiving from the Lord, and he comes to this incredible place in his life where even though all this stuff is happening around him, and even though these events are going to be coming soon, uh, he declares at the end of the book, Habakkuk 3.17, he says this, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine, though the labor of the olive tree may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He takes me and makes me walk on high hills. What is it that enables a man or a woman to say such things in a time like that? He answers his own question. Habakkuk does. He says, the just shall live by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the word of God. Faith. Not just any faith, faith in the living God. Not just any, uh, not just any God again, faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The living God. It is, faith is just, it's just the most powerful, life-changing reality known to man. Jesus said in Matthew 17, verse 20, if you have faith as a mustard seed. Now, a mustard seed was the the smallest of all seeds uh, known to man, used for, for cultivation, the smallest seed. Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this uh, mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Faith. Faith in the living God can take the most insignificant, insignificant life, the most seemingly weak life, the most flawed life, And it can turn it into something so utterly powerful and beautiful and unshakable. And that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is about. 
Faith in the living God is the one thing that enables a man or woman to break out of the curse of American life, uh, that mad pursuit of pleasure, of comfort, of security, of ease, of leisure, that obsession, uh, that idolatry to, uh, of self, to just break out of that and become fashioned into the likeness of, the, of God himself. A life that loves radically. A life that uh, is lived outside the comfort zone. A life that risks sometimes everything for someone else. Never mind a, a, a life that risks everything for himself or herself. No, for someone else. A, a life of love. A life of love. Of love. A life that moves mountains, faith in the living God, something that we should seek after more than anything else in the world. Faith, which all leads to the question, what is it? What is faith? Well, it's defined there in verse 1. Chapter 11, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. So we read here that faith is not wishful thinking. Faith is not positive thinking. A lot of people running around as if faith was sort of the positive thinking thing. You just think something into being. It's not that. Faith is not hoping for the best. Best, faith uh, is not optimism. Faith is not a feeling. No, faith, verse 1 says, is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this verse, quoted all the time, what does it mean anyway? It says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. That word substance can also be translated realization or reality. Faith is the reality of things hoped for. Second part of the verse, it is the evidence of things not seen. That word can also be just translated experience. Faith is the experience of things not seen. So if you just read it um, in that life, now faith is the reality or realization of things hoped for it's the experience of things not seen faith is a gift from god listen if you're taking notes here's where you uh here's what you write down here faith is a gift from god in which you experience now what you cannot see you can experience heaven which is to come and which you cannot see. You can experience now. You can realize the reality of something that you could not see from the past, but your, your, your heart can embrace it now. Faith is a gift of God in which your eyes are opened to the truth. Remember back in ver, uh, verse 32 of chapter 10. 
uh, we read this. It says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated or after you had your eyes open. Remember we said that word illuminated, the original Greek, photizo. Faith is when God gives you a photograph now of truth, of things that are not seen. Now, actually this may sound complicated but it's incredibly simple just let me give this one example the bible says that jesus died uh, and on a cross on the third day he was resurrected to life first corinthians 15 said he was seen by the apostle peter then by all 12 apostles then by 500 people then by the apostle james and then finally paul himself how do we know that jesus resurrected we weren't there to see it. The answer, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, faith is the reality or the substance or the realization of things not seen. It's the experience of things also of things not seen. Rather, the reality of things hoped for, the experience of things not seen. And so... Um, Faith is a gift from God in which he opens your eyes to the truth. And though you were not there, though you were not there after Jesus resurrected to see him teach, you were not there to see the wounds in his hands and, and, in, and the wound in his side and in his feet, God opens your eyes so you can see it. Again, verse 1, faith is the realization, the, the reality of, of things hope for the experience of things not seen so through the gift of faith we are not only able to experience the now uh, rather the past in a sense that we were not there to witness but we're also able to today experience the present things not seen what do i mean by that well on sunday nights we're going through the psalms and psalm 34 verse 8 says taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what Psalm 34, verse 8 says. Love that psalm. Um, psalm 16, verse 11 says, In your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasure forevermore. Well, the Bible says that God is spirit and that no man has ever seen God. How can we taste and see that the Lord is good? How can we experience the presence of the Lord? We can't see him. The answer is the gift of faith when our eyes are open to the reality of God. There was a time where faith was not necessary. When man and woman were created, Adam and Eve, there was no need for faith. Everything was just real. It doesn't take a lot of faith for me to look to my left and see my beautiful wife. There's no faith. That's just reality. She's my wife and she's beautiful. And that's how it was with, um, when it came to the things of God and with God, with Adam and Eve. The Bible says that God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. What exactly that means, we don't know. Some, some people believe he just walked in light. Uh, or in the glory of God. But um, there was no need for faith. But the nature of sin, of, of what happened in the garden when they decided, Adam and Eve, that God was not enough. They wanted to be their own 
God. They wanted to make their own decisions. They wanted to reject God's truth and create and fashion their own truth. The very nature of sin is it blinds you and me and man and woman to the truth. Faith is when God just opens your eyes back up and you can see things as they really are. Not only in the past things not seen, the present uh, things not seen, uh, but also the future. But it, it, this, is, this is just a really fascinating area because even things in the present which we can see with our eyes, the Bible says that we need faith so that we can uh, see them not only in the physical realm, but the spiritual realm. Let me give you an example um, of that. The Bible says that prior to the return of Christ, the nation of Israel, uh, after being dispersed throughout the entire world, will be recongregated and it will come back as a nation. We've seen that with our eyes. We've seen that. It's the only time anything remotely similar like that has happened in all of history. Usually ethnic groups, after a few generations, they're completely assimilated into the culture. No example do you have something after 2,000 years. Do you have a people who were once a nation, gone for 2,000 years, dispersed, come back and be formed again as a nation? Never happened, but the Bible said it would happen. Fascinating to read, um, as I read through commentaries of the Bible, of people who were living in the 1800s who were saying in their commentaries, well, this says right here in the Bible that Israel's supposed to be a nation again. Sounds crazy, but it's what the Bible says. But we've seen that with our eyes. But, the, but, but where I'm going with all this is that, is that though we see it with our eyes physically, it still takes the gift of faith which we get from God to open up our eyes in which we say, holy cow, the Bible said this was going to happen and it is happening. The Bible also says very specifically that um, before the return of Christ, the temple and all the furnishings of the temple and all those animal sacrifices uh, that are sacrificed at the temple will be reinstituted, the whole temple sacrificial system, prior to the return of Christ. And we're seeing today all these things being prepared. It's like people out there uh, in the, in the Jewish, Orthodox Jewish community like preparing like uh, the, the lambs and the, and the bulls the way they're supposed to be, looking for red heifers. The Bible says there's supposed to be a red heifer, a female a cow to, to be sacrificed. There, these things we're seeing with our eyes. A hundred years ago, there was nothing like this going on. But to an unbeliever, to someone who has not had their eyes opened, it's like, so what? <laughs> but through the gift of faith, the Bible says that faith is a gift from God given to those who seek after God. He gives them faith. You're able to see that and go, wow. This, this, this Bible is more than any other book. This is the Word of God. The Bible says, so not only the past, not only the present, but the future. But the future. It says that Jesus will come again. He will come again. We can't see that. It hasn't happened yet. But 
but through the gift of faith, your eyes are just open to, to truth, the reality. Faith is not a mysterious thing. It's, 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 it's actually very simple. The Bible says that in Romans chapter 1 and in, in Psalm 19, it says all of creation speaks and cries out to the reality of God. The mountains, the rivers, the oceans are just saying God exists, God exists, God exists. It's a gift of faith, though, where we see that and we say, wow, he really does exist. It really is crying out. It really is crying out. Heaven, our future in heaven. That when we die in Christ, we will pass from death to life. Jesus Christ said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but pass into, from death to life. By the gift of faith, we believe that. We embrace it as truth for ourselves and we are able to experience now, to realize now, to have joy now in things unseen, past, present, and future. Again, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now, from time to time, you will hear someone say, well, to be a Christian, you need blind faith. That's complete nonsense. And that's exactly what this verse says faith is not. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things. That it's evidence. Also can be translated proof. Uh, also, can, again, can be translated real experience. Blind faith is exactly what faith is not. Let me ask you something. When you get into an airplane, when you get into an airplane and you take off to some other part of the country... Are you putting your blind faith in that airplane to get you to the place you're going? Of course you're not. Because why? Because airplanes, just like that one, have many times taken you safely to your destination. The whole concept of blind faith, or of a need for blind faith in God, I, I must tell you, is just completely foreign to me. I, I, when you read the word of God and learn all the prophecy about Jesus and Israel and the world and how it has come to pass exactly the way it said it would, faith is not blind at that point. When you read the word of God and the Bible and, and, and all of a sudden you realize, it's, I remember first reading the Bible when I was 24, the puzzle of life coming together by reading this book. You realize that faith is not blind when you read the Word of God and learn that God has demonstrated Himself to His um, faithful, to His Word, and to His people for thousands of years. He has been faithful to them. You realize faith is not blind, and, and as you grow in Christ, as you grow and you mature and you get to know God. And, and the Bible say, says that when you sow, you will reap. In other words, when you plant, you will, you will harvest uh, 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 the fruit. And when you see God be 
faithful in your life over and over and over again. Faith is not blind. It's anything but it. It's the substance, the real reality, the realization of things hoped for. It's the experience, the evidence of things not seen. Now, I know there are a lot of students coming into town. And if you're a student here today, I want to say this to you. God wants to do something great in your life. And that's what this chapter, chapter 11, is all about. But he wants to do something great in your life, not through education, not through your intellect, not through your wit, your intellect, your ability, your diligence, your perseverance. No, he wants to do it through faith in him. He's got a plan for your life. He wants to do it through faith in Him. He wants to make something powerful and beautiful out of your life. And He wants to do it by faith. And faith alone. Faith in who He is. Faith in the Word of God says that God is and what He wants to do uh, with your life. You know, and this goes for everyone in this room. But particularly to uh, uh, you, you students now, th- in this season of your life, don't get sucked into the American black hole uh, of, of self, where self rules on the thro- uh, throne, where there's no fruit, there's no fruit in that life, there's no joy in that life, there's no meaning in that life. Uh, you know, when I grew up, uh, I grew up in a family uh, which did not know Christ, uh, but it did know education. My dad went to Harvard. My um, great-grandfather went to Harvard. My great-great-grandfather went to Harvard. And then who knows after that? And so from the time I was just a little boy, it's, it was all just, and, and this is not a criticism of, uh, of my parents, who, by the way, have since both become Christians and would agree with everything um, I said. But from the time, I'm saying now rather, but, but from the time I'm a little boy, it's all education. What college are you going to go to? What are you going to be? And, uh, and, and, and this type of thing. And because you've got to get to a good sc- uh, school. I was scared in seventh grade that if I got a B, I might miss out on some good school someday. Seventh grade? That's bondage. Read my lips. That's bondage. You got to get a good school because you, you got to get a good job because you have to provide for your family someday and raise your kids so you can tell them to go to a good school so they can get a good job so they can provide for their family and they can tell their kids that they got to go to a good school. You know, it just, there's this endless, mindless cycle. What is wrong with this picture? It's an endless cycle of self-satisfaction nothing wrong with education jobs and families if they are used to the glory of God for God's glory that's the only thing that life is worth living for if you don't Live your life to the glory of God. 
and use your education, your job, and your family to his glory, you will find out it's all vanity of vanities. It's like chasing after the wind. I read a proverb this week. See if I can remember it actually not from the Bible, but it was just chock full of wisdom. It said, experience is a very, very expensive school, but fools insist on going there. I love that. You can either believe in the Word of God, have faith in the Word of God, that pursuing the American dream is a lie and it's vanity of vanities. And go live your life for the glory of God. Or, man, you can just go headlong into that thing, pursuing the American dream, and you're going to pay a really high price by your own experience finding out it was all just a big waste of time that just brought on a whole lot of pain, a whole lot of misery, and no fruit. Experience is a very expensive school, and fools insist on going there. The Bible says the wisdom of God is to be cherished more than any other thing. And the Bible says it is by faith that God wants to do a great work in your life. Now we'll continue with chapter 11 next week. The wonderful, wonderful thing about this chapter. Outside of 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, this, this chapter is the most famous chapter in the Bible. Talked about all the time. Quoted, read chapter 11 of he Hebrews. The greatest thing about this chapter is that the men and women who are uh, referred to and uh, written about in this chapter, they're all filled with flaws. I mean, Abraham uh, gets scared uh, and gives his wife over to a king because he's scared the king is going to uh, kill him. And he does that twice. Can you imagine having to live with a woman after you've done that to her twice? Moses gets this idea that he's going to save Israel, so he takes out his, his little sword and, and starts brandishing it to the biggest army in the known world and kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Samuel, what a mighty man of God. Also, one of the worst pictures or the best pictures of how not to be a father. His kids were just awful rebels because they were ignored and neglected by their father their whole life. David, the height of his power and at the height of his influence, committed adultery and then murdered to, uh, to, to cover it up. And then Samson, it's like Samson is mentioned. Samson is mentioned in the chapter? Yeah, Samson. A man who spent 98% of his life just fulfilling the lusts of his flesh. He's in this chapter. 
But you never read in this chapter about his sin. There's no mention of a single man or woman's sin in this chapter. That's because when all else is done, your sin is paid for. It's gone. God remembers it no more. The Bible says he, when you are in Christ and you take on the righteousness of Christ, God sees you perfect as he sees his son and remembers your sin no more. You never hear about any of these guys and any of these gals' sins. It's not there. All that is there is the testimony of the, that they had developed because of their life of faith. Read verse 2. It says, For by it the elders, or the ancients, obtained a good testimony. God can create a good testimony, a good report, a good life story with your life simply by having faith in who He is and His Word. Okay. We will pick it up there next week. Let's... Uh, Let's close in prayer. The worship team could come up. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that it is true that even as we put our faith in, in your son, Jesus, you don't dangle our sin, our past, in front of our face anymore ever again all you have for us is a life of blessing of being with us of using us in which we just believe in your word and what you're doing with us in which we rest in your presence where there's fullness of joy in which we just take advantage and lay hold of the abundant life, Lord Jesus, that you have promised to give us. We thank you for that, Lord. And I just pray in the name of Jesus that for every man and woman here this morning, Lord, bring them to that place. Lord, if that if there's confusion or doubt or difficulties or trials or discouragement in their life or even if they're riding on the, the crest of the wave of life and life in all its abundance Lord that you Father putting your son Jesus Christ front and center fill their hearts with faith Lord fill my heart with faith there's no nothing that we seek after more than, than faith faith in who you are faith in what you're doing with our lives and, and in the world around us Lord fill us with faith. Give, give us hearts filled with faith, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you can stand. We're going to close with a, a, a worship song tonight, communion. Uh, we have a wonderful time at our communion service. Actually have a, an open mic, a uh, time of sharing and just a prayer and also teaching the Word of God. Also just want to remind any college students, Marie's going to be here immediately after the service if you're interested in that study. God bless you.
I have sinned, for I have sinned, and I have broken your heart, I have strayed from the path that you laid down for me, Lord, and what can I do, I am the problem, and I am helpless in myself. I have sinned, and I have broken your heart. I have strayed from the path that you laid down for me, Lord. And what can I do? I am the problem, and I am helpless in myself. But I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. I am a new creation now. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live. I am a new creation now. bless you all. Have a great week. We'll see you next time.